we get started, continuing with the title, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And this past Sunday, started this message, uh, this, this uh, series, and I kind of hinted around to what I'm leading toward, but in studying for this, we're going to get a little bit more in-depth in, um, in Matthew. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along, Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the uh, time that we have and the efforts that are put forth to, to put this on CD and to get this on a podcast. Father, I ask that you would bless everybody who is involved in that. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would guide me as I go through your word tonight. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I asked on, I guess it was on Sunday, I asked, why four Gospels? You ever asked yourself, why do we have four Gospels? I want to read something to you out of Genesis chapter 2, and something to think about. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it parted and became into four heads. So you're reading the story of creation, you're reading about man and how he was formed and he was to, you know, be in the garden, and then just it just starts talking about the tree of life being the midst of the garden, along with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then it just throws this statement out talking about a river. A river, one river, that was water, coming out of Eden and then separating into four heads. Why is that there? Why is that thrown in Scripture? I know it's not an accident. I know it's not to fill up space. But it makes me think of Jesus coming out of heaven into the four different types that we talked about Sunday king, servant, man, and eagle. The son of man is Luke. The son of God, that would be the book of John, that face of an eagle. The lion of Judah being the king, and that's what we're going to be talking mostly about tonight. And then the face of an ox, talking about the cherubim and the four faces of the cherubim. And it, it just makes me think of one Jesus coming out of heaven and then four. What, what is significant about the number four? We're going to get into a little bit of the significance of numbers in, in the Bible. And if you think about the number four, there are four Gospels. That river parted into four different heads. Four is an earthly number. When you think of a compass, north, south, east, and west. You ever heard the phrase in the Bible, the four corners of the earth? We have four seasons on this earth. Spring, summer, fall, winter. There were four great World empires, not nations, but world empires that the Bible talks about. 
the Babylonian world empire, then the Medo-Persian, then the Grecian, and then the Rome, Roman Empire, which is still, in my opinion, in existence today. It just separated, not really, divided. It, it divided and divided and divided. And I think all the nations of the world today are just a leftover of the Roman Empire. The fourth commandment is the one that tells us to rest from all of earth's labors. How about the fourth clause in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done in earth. Four is an earthly number. So, it is very fitting that the Holy Spirit has given us four Gospels to set forth the earthly ministry of the Heavenly One. Now, Matthew. The book of Matthew, I've I've already said, just picture the face of a lion, picture the lion of Judah, the king of Israel. That's what, we, that's what you need to think about when you're, when you're reading Matthew. Matthew is very different than the other three Gospels. Most people will say that Matthew, Mark, Luke are the same and John's different. They're all different from each other. They all have very, very similar things that you can look at, but they're very different as well if you pay very close attention. Some of them are very uh, noticeable, others are hidden. Matthew is a transitional book. First book of the New Testament, but what happened before that? It just happened to be four centuries between Malachi and Matthew. Four centuries, just happens to be four. It's very Jewish in nature. What, what, uh, as far as all the books in the Bible, what number is it? It would be the 40th. Because there's 39 Old Testament books, it's the 40th book. The number 40 is very significant to the nation of Israel. So it would be the book of testing for the Jewish people. The very, all right, you, know, you know chapter 1 and chapter 2 really well. Every time we go through the Christmas period, we are talking about chapter 1 and chapter 2. So... I, do I even need to say anything about it at all? Or do you just know, you know it? You know it good enough where I don't even have to say anything about it. What do you think? The very first verse of Matthew, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What do you think? The son of David. Are you going to see that phrase in any of, the, any of the other Gospels? Jesus is referred to, Jesus is actually addressed as son of David seven times in Matthew. Seven. The title, son of David, is mentioned ten times in the book of Matthew. How about son of Abraham? What, what meaning does that have? This is the genealogy. This, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, and this is the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham connects Jesus to the land. 
Being the son of David, it connects Jesus to the throne. How many times are you going to see son of Abraham? Maybe just this one time. Because that's not the significant thing of the book of Matthew. It's him being king of the Jews is what's significant. So being the son of David gives him the rightful claim to the throne on earth. David's earthly throne is where Jesus is, has been prophesied for years upon years upon years. And the, the Jewish nation is looking for their Messiah that is going to sit on the throne of David. Jesus comes into this earth. We see it here in, 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 uh, in Matthew chapter 1. It is so important to understand the book of Matthew or you will have trouble in the rest of the New Testament. If you can't rightly divide the word of truth in Matthew, you will have confusions as you go through the rest of the New Testament. There is a reason that it's first in the New Testament. How many generations are in this first part of Matthew? There's, they're grouped in three. It's, it's three groups... That sound familiar? There's three groups. Each group has how many? Fourteen, right? I thought y'all knew this already because we had already been over it at Christmas time. Oh, that was last year. Christmas was last year. So I figured you would know all this and you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, move on, move on. Go over to chapter 3 or something. When you get to 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So what's, uh, what's the significance of that? Jesus was manifested after those three sets of 14 were talked about. Three is the number of manifestation. You wouldn't have God if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. God would not exist without those three. It takes all three. You wouldn't exist without the three parts that make up you. You are body, soul, and spirit. If you take one of those away, you cease to exist as what you're supposed to be. Every object has three dimensions. If you take one of the dimensions away, leave the other two, the object disappears. Just by taking one dimension away, it all goes away. Does that make sense? So three, without three, you don't have anything. So that's the significance of number three. It has many meanings in Scripture, but that's the one I want you to think about right now. What about 14? What about the number 14? Now, this, is, this, is, this is cool stuff, okay? Seven times two equals 14. Now, 
E.W. Bullinger has a book on numbers in, Bi- in the Bible, and it's fascinating. I didn't even turn to that book for this. I, I, I got it from, from another book that is really interesting, but seven times two. The number two, what is it significant of? Hmm? Okay, we had, all right, two witnesses. Got to be two witnesses. If somebody came to accuse you of doing something wrong and it was just the one person, it just didn't fly. But if two came, so two people could get you put in jail, or two people can come and say, no, he didn't do it, he's free. Two is very important for a witness. So seven times two would be, seven is the number of perfection, so it's a perfect witness, a true witness. How about, how about Jesus? Think about Jesus being the perfect one. He is the true witness. 14 times 3 is 42. 14 times 3 is 42 which could also be expressed as 7 times 6. 7, 6, the perfect Jesus becomes the only perfect man to ever walk this earth. I also like to look at it as perfect 7 coming to see us, the number of man, 6, and joining with us so that we can be identified with him. So three groups of 14... 14 times 3 equals 42, otherwise known as 7 times 6, which is also 42, but 7, perfectness, and then the number of man. Here's here's, uh, something that Jesus is referred to in Revelation. He's referred to as the faithful and true witness. It just happens to be Revelation 3, 14. I don't know if that has any... Significance to it, but it just happens to be 3.14. Starting with Abraham, the genealogy. So Abraham is, is the father of the Hebrew nation, the, na- the nation of Israel. We have Mary's miraculous conception. You know that there are more quotations from the Old Testament in Matthew than the other three Gospels combined. That's because it's very Jewish in nature. They're going to really be thinking about the Old Testament. Think about all the Gentiles that were around. Were they concerned about the Old Testament? Not much at all, if at all. But the nation of Israel, very interested in the Old Testament. They hung on to it. They had the law. They were special. There's a whole lot of prophecies fulfilled in Matthew. Many, many prophecies fulfilled. Mary's miraculous conception. Where Jesus was born. So many in Matthew. And and as you read through Matthew, you're going to see one after the other as you go through it, of prophecies that were uh, fulfilled at that time. So what do you think about chapter 1? Did you know that much about chapter 1? 
There's more, but we're moving on to chapter 2. This is an overview. So, <laughs> it is. I, I didn't read hardly anything out of it. Okay, we've got chapter 2. First thing that happens in chapter 2, the wise men. Do you see the wise men in any of the other Gospels? Only in Matthew. Why? And who did they come to see? Why did they go to where they went? And why did they go to Jerusalem looking for him? What is the question that they asked when they got there? Where is it that this king of the Jews is going to be born? We're looking for... They didn't say, we are here looking for the Savior of the world, or the Savior of the Jews, or the Word becoming flesh. They came seeking the King of the Hebrews. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod, it got Herod's attention, didn't it? Herod called for all of the scribes. He called for all the people who would know. Well, he surely didn't know. He didn't really care until he was threatened. Then he got all real interested in it. The purpose of Matthew being a transitional book, when you, as you read through Matthew, you're, you're going to see that there's very, there is no salvation as far as um, grace. You don't see too much grace. You don't see, as, as we go through it, it'll make more sense. But the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to show Christ presenting himself to Israel, Israel's rejection of him, the result of which is God setting aside Israel for a season. There are some people that teach that he set them aside forever. He's not going to deal with them anymore. That's not right. He set them aside for a season and that's where you get into the 70 weeks of Daniel, the 490 years. You go through, you, that's where you see the four world, em, uh, world empires, as in Daniel. And that was the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. The end of the time of the Gentiles, when Jesus comes back. So God has set them apart for a season. He set, he set them aside. Then... Reaching out in grace to the despised Gentiles. That's what happens in Matthew. The wise men don't go back to Herod. Herod wants all the little children killed, all the, what, two years and under. All of them killed in all of Bethlehem and all the surrounding areas. That happens. Joseph has a dream. He takes Mary and Jesus. They flee to Egypt. They come in, Herod's people come in and, and kill the babies. Then Rachel, we hear of Rachel weeping for her children. Do you know how long Rachel had been dead before this happened? It says that Rachel, according to Jeremiah, 
It's this, it was Rachel, you could hear Rachel crying, weeping for her children. Rachel died 1,730 years before. But she, you know where she died? In the Bethlehem area. On their trip, and she was pregnant with Benjamin, and she started having hard labor. Well, she had taken the idols from her father's house and was sneaking them back with them. She held on to them. She died giving birth to Benjamin. So 1,730-some years later, the Bible says she's weeping. You can hear her weeping for all those children that have been killed. Then shortly after that, Herod dies, a very agonizing death that he deserved. Sorry, but he did. He was a horrible person. I could talk for a good while on just all the terrible things that he did. With the death of Herod, Jesus was able to come back. So, just like the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Another prophecy fulfilled. Not only did they come out of Egypt, but you'll notice they came out of Egypt into the land of Israel. You won't see that phrase in the other Gospels or even probably in the rest of the New Testament. The land of Israel. It's their land. Chapter 3. I'm going to read, since this is... We haven't gone over chapter 3. That uh, need to get into a little deeper. I'm going to read from chapter 3. This is, this is about John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, this is where you need to pay very close attention to every word. In those days came John the Baptist. So, what do we, at the end of 2, it's talking about Jesus coming back and how he lived in Nazareth. He was a Nazarene, which was a despised little community in a despised area of Galilee. What good thing comes out of Nazareth? What, these are all Galileans. How could they know? How could they be speaking in all these other languages after, you know, when you get over into Acts? They have never been to school. They're from Galilee. You know, Jesus picked his disciples from places that most people would pick. So in those days where Jesus was in, was in, you know, in Nazareth, uh, John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Why is he in the wilderness? Isn't everybody in Jerusalem? Wouldn't he get a better audience if he goes to where all the people are? Why is he way out in the wilderness? Why isn't he dressed up real nice? Why does he look like a really rough dude out there in the middle of nowhere, but all the people, all kinds of people, are going out to see him in the wilderness? I think God didn't want this new thing that was about to happen. The king, the actual king, Jesus Christ, was going to show up. This is something new. There's been 400 years of silence. I don't think God wanted 
anything to, that, that had to do with this new ministry to be wrapped up in or anywhere close to any of the religious circles that were in the big cities, especially Jerusalem. What had happened to Judaism? It was in bad shape. You know, a wilderness symbolizes the barrenness and desolation of Israel's spiritual condition. So what did John the Baptist say? He's preaching in the wilderness, but what did he say? He didn't have a long message. Repent ye, which, again, ye, that, that's something I was, I was, it slipped my mind on Sunday when I was talking about, I like it when people ask me certain things about the King James. Well, that's another example. It all just totally slipped my mind. But there are several things that I like people to come and ask me about, and that says the, the language needs to be updated. It needs to be more modern. Well, I like, and if you're in Sunday school, you've heard this all before, I like the these and the thous and the yees, all those things, I like them because it makes it more accurate. You, you, it makes it easier to understand exactly who he's talking to. Now, a new, um, if you had modern English here, it would be repent you. And you could be sitting there going, uh, yeah, he's talking to that guy. Repent you. He's not talking to me, he's talking to him. But when I say ye, that's each and every one of you you've got to take this on, you've got to take this on, you have to take this. Every single person, but the whole group, I'm talking to all of you, that's ye. So that's another reason why I love the King James Bible. Because it, it keeps the ye's and the thou's, all those archaic, so-called archaic words. <laughs> repent ye. I'm like, what in the world was I talking about? Okay, repent ye. Uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that term, kingdom of heaven, in any other of the Gospels other than Matthew? If you have a King James Version, no. You will not see it in any of the other Gospels. Well, isn't the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God the same thing? Well, here's the first clue. They're spelled differently. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not this Christian dispensation that we are in now. We are in the dispensation of grace. That's why I was telling you a little earlier, the book of Matthew, it's, it's a bunch of law. It's a whole bunch of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, if you compare it very closely with the Beatitudes over in Luke and the little bit that's in Mark, if you compare them very closely, you're, you're going to see in Matthew, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then over in Luke, it's going to be very similar to the same thing. It'll say, so theirs is the kingdom of God. So when I say the kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of God, it, it's and this is pitiful, I know, to compare what I'm about to compare with the kingdoms of heaven, kingdom of God. But think about football, college football, NFL football. Now, my mom, you could show her two different. You can show her a college team, an NFL team. You can show the, her the games. She would not have a clue which one is which. But you show them to Joseph, then he's going to pick them out right away. Boom, just like that. 
Well, when they line up on the field, it doesn't matter if it's college or pro. They both have 11 players on offense, 11 on defense. They have to go 10 yards to get a first down. They both are trying to get into an end zone to get six points. They kick, a field, they kick, a, they kick it through the little uprights to get another point added on to it. There's a whole lot that's the same, but they're also different. College, you only have four, four or five years, and you've got to move on. In the NFL, you can be like a Tom Brady, and is he ever going to leave? You can, you can play year after year if you're good enough, or you might not make it at all. When you're, when you're catching a pass on the sideline, in the NFL, two feet got to be in bounds, in college, only one. So there are, sli- there are differences in the college game compared to the NFL game. But if you don't pay close attention, it's all the same to you if you really don't pick out the little details. And that's like the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They are similar, but actually the example of the pro and the college football thing, they're way more similar than kingdom of heaven. The more I study the word of God, the more I see the differences kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you some examples out of my companion Bible. This is actually a Bible that E.W. Bullinger put together a long time ago. And he's got the uh, differences here. This is uh, Appendix 114 in the companion Bible. And he says, I'm just going to read the, the list of differences. The kingdom of heaven has Messiah for its king. The kingdom of God has God for its ruler. Kingdom of heaven. It is from heaven and under the heavens upon the earth. It's actually a kingdom that's supposed to be happening on the earth. John the Baptist just said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's right about ready for you. It's right here. It's nigh unto you. And why did he say that? Because the king of the Jews was there. And all they had to do was accept Jesus as the king, the Messiah of the kingdom of heaven, and it could have been set up on earth. Well, when the king is rejected, that got put on hold. And it allowed for the time of the church to enter which was the plan all along. Okay? All right, let me finish this list here. So the kingdom of heaven is, is, is really on the, it's supposed to be on the earth, but the kingdom of God, it is in heaven over the earth. Number three. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is limited in its scope, unlimited in its scope for the kingdom of God. Number four. It is political in its sphere. Sphere. Kingdom of God, it is moral and spiritual in its sphere. It is Jewish and exclusive in its character. Kingdom of heaven, it was just for the Jews. Now when the... uh, And their way of doing things. Okay. Five. The kingdom of God... It is inclusive in its character, emphasizing the natural and spiritual seeds of Abraham, the heavenly calling, and the church of the mystery. 
So it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, you can get into the kingdom of God. But to get into the kingdom of heaven, you know, the kingdom of heaven was taken by force. They came and took the king, falsely accused him, hung him on a cross, crucified him. It was taken by force. King of God cannot be taken by force. Satan has tried, and he has failed. He'll continue to try, knowing that he's going to fail. But how many can he bring down with him in the meantime? That's why we do what we do. Trying to save as many people as possible before that happens. Uh, Number six, the kingdom of heaven is national in its aspect. It is universal for the kingdom of God in its aspect. And number seven, kingdom of heaven, it is the special subject of Old Testament prophecy. Kingdom of God, it is in its wider aspect the subject of New Testament revelation. And the eighth difference And it is dispensational in its duration. Kingdom of God, it will be eternal in its duration. See the differences? So they are different. All right. We've gotten two verses done in chapter 3. We're moving right along. 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet and I'm going to go ahead and say Isaiah. In the King James, it, like I said before, it's got different spellings. But Isaiah says Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John, John the Baptist, had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat, or his food, was locusts and wild honey. Yummy. The honey made them good. Uh, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. So people were going out. I heard about this guy out there. He's out in the wilderness. He's he's, he's crazy. And we need to go see him because he's baptizing people and telling them about the remission of sins and, and those types of things. We need to repent. He's saying stuff about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So these people are going out there. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, they didn't come there to get baptized. They just come to see what was going on. There's no way they were going to let that guy baptize them. They were just too high and mighty. They thought too much of themselves. And they were just going out to see what all the fuss was. And John, he, 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 looked, he saw them and he said, uh, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat, or suited for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. They, they have been producing no fruit whatsoever for God. They were in a pitiful state, and John's calling them out on it. 11, very important verse. Pay very close attention to this. I indeed baptize you with 
water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, I've heard some really... And you've heard me talk about this before. I brought this up because it's, it's something I've heard preached wrongly. And they, people will say, well, yeah, he's going to uh, baptize you with the Holy Ghost and he's going to baptize you with fire. Uh, and, and they'll refer to the, the, uh, the tongues of fire that was over top of the people on the day of Pentecost. And they said that's what it means. And you'll start speaking in unknown tongues and all this stuff. And you'll be so super spiritual. But what he's saying here is he's either going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost or he's going to baptize you in fire. Now, how do I know that that's the difference? Because it says right there, if you just read it, it says he's going to do both to a person. But no, he's, he's either going to do one or the other. So what does it say right after that? Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, and he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire is what's going on in hell. Can't put it out. See the difference? See, see how that, that second verse defines the one before? The Bible defines itself very well. Now, you can compare that, if you want more proof of what I'm telling you, you can compare it to Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Acts 1. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. What's left out? The fire. Why? Because these are all guys waiting for the Holy Ghost. These are all people that are good. They're not hell-bound. They're heaven-bound. See? It doesn't apply to them. And in, uh, if, you, if you was to turn to Mark uh, chapter 1, I don't have that one Mark, but I hear it. Mark 1, 7 and 8. And preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, uh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. So this is the exact same story that Matthew just uh, wrote about, about John the Baptist and his ministry. But here it's, it says, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, why is the fire not here? Is it a mistake in the Bible? No. These, the, the King James Bible is perfect. Jesus, in Matthew's the king, he's very able to either baptize you with the Holy Ghost or with fire. He can be a judge as a king. In Mark, he's a servant. Servants do not ex execute judgment. The, the Bible is so exact. I mean, it is perfect. In Luke... If you read the same story in Luke, it'll say, baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, exactly the way it did it in Matthew. 
Why? Not Mark, he's a servant in Mark, but in, in Luke, he is the son of man. Well, there's something significant that is said in John, the spiritual gospel. In John chapter 5, verse 27, it says, And has given him, talking about Jesus, authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So he was the perfect sacrifice. He had to be in a human fleshly body and be perfectly sinless to be able to be able to go to the cross to be a sacrifice for all of mankind. So as the king of the Jews, he's able to either baptize with the Holy Ghost or to throw you in hell forever. Same thing as being the Son of Man. And John clarifies it by saying that it has been given him authority to execute judgment. And then, of course, that story is not in John, the spiritual book. It's not, in, it's not there at all. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is wanting to be baptized by John? That seems a little strange. And, and look, look at what John, how John handles that. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Are you serious? You are the Son of God, and you're coming and asking me to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. You know that in the other Gospels, Jesus goes to John, but you don't see the same pushback. But Jesus is the king of the Jews here in Matthew. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it, be, be, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So he said, Okay, we'll do this. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water... And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's all kinds of little things that you are going to see in Matthew that I'm trying to pick them out. And as we go through Matthew, I want you to see the differences and how the book of Matthew portrays Jesus as the king, the lion of Judah. He has the rightful claim to the throne of David. He's mentioned, he's, he's called the son of David, he's referred to as the son of David. He has the right to the throne, but he's got to be rejected so that the servant part of him can be played out, the son of man part of him can be played out, and the son of God can be played out, and we can see him for all that he is and be able to turn to him and tell everybody about him. I mean, when, you, when you read this and you see all these details, you know, I was writing this stuff down in my notebook today, I just had tears streaming down my face. I'm like, wow, how can anybody not have a change of heart after listening to this. 
and how the plan was to save a dirty, rotten sinner like all of us were. That was the plan all along. That's why he was rejected by his people. The kingdom of heaven was put on hold, but it's coming. The prophets say it was coming. We don't know when it's going to come, but it's when, when we get to the end of the church age, this dispensation of grace that we're in now, when that comes to an end, and the church, the true church is taken out of here, you know, all this was because I was, I was reading about chapter 13 and those mystery parables, and there's a lot. Sunday we're going to get into the, the, some of these other chapters leading up to that, and you're going to see more and more things that are going to separate Matthew from the others. And it's, and it's going to show you that it's nation of Israel, nation of Israel, and they're going to reject him. And it's going to open it up for everybody else. We're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this night. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, give each and every person that's here tonight a special blessing. Lord, commit this word into our minds and into our hearts and our spirits that we will leave here better equipped to walk into this hurting world, this world that needs to know you and be able to show your love to those who need to see it. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.